when I was first in the hospital and I was paralyzed, the phrase, this is what we're doing now, kept going through my head. This is what we're doing now. I talked them into putting me on saline and laying there and just figuring, you know what? I'm now seven days from my Ironman and we're just going to call this the most aggressive taper in the history of tapering and juice me up. Give me some hydration. One thing to know when you are an athlete is that your strength in these situations are, is going to work against you. Athletic helps our life. Our life helps athletics. All of those experiences are invaluable to having us understand that we are far more capable than we think we are. It doesn't harm anything to believe that I'm gonna make this happen, that we are gonna make this happen and it's going to be for the positive. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Activist Podcast. This is Elise Mason here with Jamie King and today's episode is going to light a fire. We had the chance to talk to Lynn Rogers, an incredible human being, an athlete, who went from being an Ironman triathlete to paralyzed from the chest down in a matter of days. She later went on to recover enough to run the Chicago Marathon for the 11th time. But unfortunately, her recovery journey wasn't destined for that kind of fairy tale ending. Today, Lynn is sharing her wild ride with us in all of its heartbreaking and motivational detail. We will also be hosting two benefit classes to support Lynn in getting the treatment she needs. So if you're able, please join us on the mat Wednesday, October 7th and Saturday, October 10th. You can find all the details at flexandflow.org schedule. And if you're able to support Lynn, we will include her fundraising link in the show notes. This is a chance to support one of our own and to make sure that Lynn's first Ironman is not her last. No amount is too small, and thank you. Now, let's get to the story. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to The Activist. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for being here. We are so excited to hear your story and to learn from you. And I just want to give a quick shout out to how we met you, which is via Erica. She's Erica Agrin on Instagram. We'll put her in the show notes. Um, and her blog is Erica Fines. And we've known Erica for a long, long time. So when she introduced us to you, we knew immediately that we were going to love you and be inspired by you. So thank you, Erica. Thanks for making this connection. Erica is one of those people that I am so grateful to have met and to know and sounds so insufficient, but runner friend, at least that's how we first know each other. She and Neil were constantly at my bedside when I was in the hospital. You could only imagine the amount of amazing gluten-free, dairy-free, anything she could think of snacks that we had for myself and anyone that wanted to stop by. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I mean, I'm not surprised, but showing up and bringing snacks are basically the best ways to be a friend. So I love that. But Lynn, we'd love to start by just getting to know a little bit about who you are. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? I am many things, which I'm thrilled to say. Professionally, I'm a scientist. I have a PhD in biomedical engineering and have uh, spent my career in rehabilitation neuroscience up to this point. Athletically, I started as a gymnast way back when and then have progressed into being a runner, a marathoner, 
a triathlete, a crossfitter, just someone that loves movement and loves getting outside and getting the opportunity to do it with other people. So Lynn, where we'd love to start is really the whole point of this conversation that we're having. We really want to hear about this crazy health journey that you've been on for the last few years. Oh, I'd be happy to. Crazy is definitely the word. So in 2017, I was in the last month's training for Ironman Canada. It was going to be my second Ironman. I was thrilled to have the opportunity to be flying out to Whistler and be in British Columbia and be in that absolutely gorgeous spot in the world to take on a race that is really, really special to me and do it with friends. I had three friends, two very close ones that were also racing and we had organized friends, family. We had a couple of condos in a village. We had a whole group that was coming from multiple states to come cheer us on and vacation and all of the things. And so it was a it was an exciting time and looking forward to it. And it was 10 days out from the race when I noticed when I was washing my hands at work that the water felt weird. It's the best way I can describe it. It just didn't feel like water is supposed to feel. It didn't feel like washing your hands is supposed to feel. Something was strange and something was wrong in the sense, sense sensation and sensitivity in my hands. And I worked at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which is a major rehabilitation hospital in Chicago. And I work with physical therapists and I work with doctors. And so I was very lucky to be in a situation to walk in, back into the lab with my colleagues and tell them what was going on. And we all kind of go through thinking about what it could be. Is it uh, pressure on a nerve? Well, that doesn't make any sense because it's going to both hands, blah, blah, blah. And you go through, okay, this is a little bit strange, but my hands are just feel a little funny. And so we'll keep our eyes on it and whatever. And the next day I had the same strange, numb, tingling sensation start to happen in my feet. And then the day after it started to happen in my tongue, my tongue started to go numb and food started and liquid started to taste strange. And that for me was the line of calling a doctor and finding out what was going on. This is of course, and will be the, the theme of my life happening on a Friday. And it was late in the evening on a Friday and nothing happens really in the hospital unless it's an emergency on the weekend. But I did have the opportunity to see a neurologist and he recognized what could be the early symptoms of a syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is an autoimmune disorder that your own immune system starts attacking the coating on your nerves. So they hooked me up to an IV as is standard um, in the hospital over the weekend. And I have to tell you, I talked them into putting me on saline and laying there and just figuring, you know what, I'm now seven days from my Ironman and we're just gonna call this the most aggressive taper in the history of tapering and juice me up, give me some hydration. Nothing happened really over the course of the weekend. It didn't go the way they expected it to. And anytime anyone tried to test my strength, I was fine. And one thing to know when you are an athlete is that your strength in these situations are, is going to work against you. When they are assessing typical strength and are you what's called a five out of five on how hard you can push against them, you are starting from a place that is stronger than the average bird. And it took a while before 
what I could perceive and knew right away was a change in strength came across as a change in strength in the tests that the doctors do. And that's hard. And I'm not advocating that if, that anyone stop working out or stop doing strength training, but I think it's something that we all need to be aware of. And so I was discharged. I went home and I did what any good Ironman triathlete would do. And that's immediately do a workout, got on the bike and I could bike okay, felt a little different felt a little funny in terms of coordination, but when I got off the bike and I tried to do a short run, I couldn't. And that's really my only word I can have for it. I couldn't run. I, tr I knew I knew that if I was going to try to push off of one leg and land on the other one, I was going to land on my face. It was like I'd lost the ability to understand or to even send the signals to my legs of coordination of push off and land. So I came in bawling, told my partner, Tony, this is not okay. This is what's going on. Next day I went into work because I needed to. And I am very lucky, like I said, to work in a place where I could go to one of my colleagues who's also a um, physiatrist and a specialist. So we're both experts in the brain. And we talked through what's going on, what should I do? They sent me actually down to our outpatient physical therapy clinic where we have physical therapists that are, are specialists in neurological issues. And lo and behold, we discovered that if I tried to do things like stand with one foot in front of the other, like you would on a um, sobriety test, if I tried to walk along a beam and do it with my eyes closed, I would fall over. If I tried to hop on one foot, I would fall down. And so there was definitely something wrong. She sent me back to the ER. They took a spinal tap because with Guillain-Barre syndrome, again, that's what they were thinking. And I've had at this point, all of the blood work, because that's the other thing to know about something like Guillain-Barre is that it's partially a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you have to, they have to figure out all of the things and get rid of all the possibilities that it could be, because there aren't very ways to test for it. But one of the ways to test for it is a spinal tap. Mine came back and I was told it was normal. And I was told as I was being discharged again, that there is nothing neurologically wrong with me. So I was told to go home. At that point, I had been told many times by every doctor that was hearing my story and knew what I had coming up in the week. I was told not to do that crazy race. Don't go do that crazy race. But for any athlete that does marathons, that does anything, like that's what every doctor has ever, ever told us about everything, right? That it's always, don't do that crazy thing. And so I packed like a maniac and the next morning got on my flight to Vancouver because that's what you do. <laughs> if you fly into Whistler, you're taking a float plane that goes over the mountains and through some of the absolutely most gorgeous scenic world that you could possibly hope to see. And the airport that you go from is about a mile walk from uh, the van main Vancouver airport when you fly in. And that mile walk was insane. I could not keep up with Tony to save my life. I could not. And we were, of course, under a time crunch. It was obvious that something was very wrong because that's not me. And over the course of the time that I was in Vancouver, I would develop unbelievable back pain, insane, incredible back pain overnight. I found that the only thing that helped was hot water. If I put on the shower and had it beat on my back as hot as it possibly could, and I would do that all night long, back and forth, back and forth. And by the time the day of the race came, 
I was crawling to get back and forth to the bathroom. And I was aware that I couldn't step over the lip of the tub safely and was doing it holding on to things. Obviously, I was not going to be able to do an Ironman. That was a hard realization on the day before, but by the end of that day, you know, and I had done everything I could trying to come up with like, okay, I can't clip into my bike, but maybe if I carry, you know, a uh, tie sack on my back with regular shoes, and if that's not working, I'll switch my shoes. I was in problem solver mode, insane focused. I was not enough in touch with the reality of what was happening. But when I tried at the end of the day, the night before to at least swim, I got myself to the point of maybe I'll just do the swim. The wetsuit will help me. And I couldn't do that. I didn't have the coordination for that and just crawled myself out of the water, laid on the beach with Tony and just bald crying and then said, okay, I guess I'm going to be a spectator. So that's all we can do here. So I did. And my friends did amazing and I cheered them on and it was incredible. And being a spectator at an Ironman is an experience that I think everyone should have. And even in this crazy situation that I was in, it was amazing. But as the day went on, I couldn't walk anymore. And so it was taking two people to help me on either side to be able to make anything happen. So by the next day, it was in the middle of the night that night, and that sensation, which had been building in my feet and in my hands of the burning and the numbness, was then now crawling up my arms. And the tightness around my chest was like being in a vice. And I looked at Tony and I was like, we got to get out of here. So we did. The next day, we saw a doctor in Whistler who consulted with someone at Vancouver General Hospital, which happens to be basically right near the airport. And the two of them decided that I need to get to Vancouver. And when I got there, if I could still breathe, I should get on the plane and I should fly back to Chicago. If I was having trouble breathing, I needed to check into the hospital. So that's the point we were at. <laughs> oh my goodness. If you can still breathe, Still breathe, if you can still breathe. And I was terrified, both the breathing thing, but the pain that I had been in overnight, and we were gonna be taking an overnight flight, was so insane that I just couldn't imagine being able to get through it, being able to sit up and sit still for a five hour flight um, from Vancouver back to Chicago. But we got there, I couldn't walk. Tony put me in a wheelchair and the doctor, God bless him, in Whistler had given me a prescription for Dilaudid because of the pain and because of my fear of, of getting through. And he's like, just take it, be on the airplane, like it'll take the edge off. And it did. And I fell asleep and I slept for the majority of the flight and I'd thrown up on the way to the airport. And so I was also feeling nauseous and, and afraid I was going to throw up. And so I sat there sleeping with the barf bag in my hand for four and a half hours, which I know was just an absolute delight and a thrill for anyone around me. That's what you want to see in your, uh, in your row at the airport. And Tony and I were both on the aisle. So we're not sitting, we're sitting next to each other, but, but with the aisle in between. So I've got two strangers to the left of me and he's got two strangers to the right of him. And I made it all the way. I wake up, I'm nauseous. The plane lands in Chicago. And as it stops, I throw up everywhere. <laughs> managed to put it into that bag. Tony managed to do a very impressive bag swap mid throw up with me and we made minimal mess, but it was the most, I can only imagine what the people around us were thinking. I can only imagine. We went straight to Northwestern Memorial Hospital and 
I would end up staying there for three and a half months. I was paralyzed from the chest down, but things weren't going well over those first couple of weeks in the hospital. I was not improving. I wasn't really able to do physical therapy. I was like, all right, I know, I know how muscles work. I know that the only way to get them back is to work. And you think your attitude is going to be like, okay, you get three or four hours of therapy today. And I'm like, yeah, well, I'll be in the gym multiple hours after that and do whatever. And it's just, you're sick and you can barely do what you're supposed to do. And you can barely lift an arm and barely lift a leg. And weeks went by and I was starting to get worse. And I could tell, and my therapist could tell the doctors were willing to let it ride a little longer. This is an unpredictable disease. And I had my inpatient physical therapist went to bat for me in a huge way. She would actually later win an award for going to bat for me and saying, she's not okay. This is getting worse. She saved countless feet, yards, miles of my nervous system by doing that. We tried a different treatment and I had a different doctor and then things started to come together. Eventually, all of a sudden I could move a toe. I could move my knee and it started us on the road back. I would make great progress, but that cycle of doing well for about two weeks and then starting to go paralyzed again would happen multiple times. I will never forget back and forth and being at Northwestern again after another set of cycle of two weeks worth of treatments. It was the day of the Chicago Marathon. And I had been running the Chicago Marathon. I ran it 10 times from 2002 to 2011. And then starting in 2012, had started either volunteering or cheering friends on or doing what you do living in Chicago, you know, and being part of that race. And so this was the first time that I was just watching it on TV um, and watching it oddly a couple of blocks from the one mile marker, um, but couldn't be a part of it and couldn't be around it, which was surreal. So that back and forth and back and forth would happen multiple times until my neurologist understood that we weren't dealing with Guillain-Barre syndrome. We were dealing with its evil step sister, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy or CIDP, which is a chronic version of your system attacking itself over and over and over again. And that's what I have. And that's what I have been managing since then. Wow. That is just such a crazy ride to imagine showing up for an Ironman and discovering you can't even step over the edge of a bathtub. It was nuts. It was definitely nuts. And and when I look back on it, I recognize that part of the nuts was both being like, okay, this is happening and how do we get through it? I felt like I had done my due diligence. I'd gone to the doctor multiple times. I'd spent five or six days in the hospital and it was like, okay, um, I've done what I'm supposed to do. So now how do I do this? And it definitely took an extreme, we are done being able to walk. You can't even move before it was the, okay, no, really, no, really, we have to figure this out. Yes, it's so true for athletes, especially someone who's about to complete an Ironman, that, you know, of course you go into problem solving mode and you're like, oh, well, I'm used to pushing through discomfort. I'll just figure my way through this weird thing that's happening to my body. And that would serve me and has served me well since and in many things. But in that particular scenario, it can work against you for sure. What does life look like for you right now? How are you managing your disease? 
the way that this all worked was that the first year was like a dream. It was everything that I could have hoped for in terms of making recovery strides, improving all the time. I was intensive physical and occupational therapy for months. And during that time, I would also do what we do as athletes. I was doing a lot on my own. I was going to the gym and as a CrossFitter, I went immediately back to our box. I just cannot say enough good things about CrossFit Defined and the coaches there because we brought everything back to nothing. And they set up, you know, I would do things where I'd have a box behind me so that basically a squat was sitting down and standing back up. That's all it is anyway, you know? And so I started with that. I started with a PVC pipe, which is a piece of plastic that's a pound in weight. And that was my bar. That was my barbell. And we started from there. And so we got to the point where I went from, you know, a wheelchair to using two forearm crutches to being able to run with braces to being able to run Shamrock Shuffle that that March. And that was a moment for me in Chicago. Shamrock Shuffle is kind of the unofficial start to the running season and to, to have done it the year before and then do it again and feel like I hadn't missed at least the start of the season was insane. And I continued to do better. I continued to build. I continued to be able to. So for those months in that first year, I was able to do a really high capacity, like an Ironman training of, you know, 12 hours a week, 15 hours a week of training, plus going to work full time and eventually would run the 2018 Chicago Marathon which was awesome and sounds like a fairy tale. And then I go trotting off into the distance and all as well. But the summer of 2018, I would start to have vision problems and I would start to have hearing problems and I would start to have fatigue that was unbelievable. And so everything was dwindling back to be able to just run and which was great. And I was still able to do it. And I had just an amazing marathon, but things were starting to show themselves in terms of problems. And by January of 2019, I would have this unbelievable episode of what I now understand is considered to be a vestibular migraine. If I move my eyes in any way, my stomach starts to drop and it's an awful sensation. It's a nauseating sensation. My stomach will drop 10 times in a second. Boom, 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 boom. And so I would spend what ended up being an entire week in bed. I, I couldn't move. And I thought I had a virus. We thought we had a problem. Late 2019 into 2020, I am in a situation now where those vestibular migraines are almost happening every other month and they can go on for a month themselves. So the last one I had ended on August 30th and that had been 26 days. So I had an initial really great recovery muscularly. And, but what is layered on top of it are some of these other things that your nervous system controls everything, right? It controls everything. So chronic fatigue is common to many, many people who have CIDP and are common to people who are recovering from Guillain-Barre. Nobody really understands it, but it's awful. It's debilitating. It makes it so that you, you can't move. You can't do anything but sleep. And that happens to me uh, as well as these migraines all the time. Um, so unfortunately, it got to the point where um, it's impossible to hold a job, let alone um, a job that's hard when you're not sick, while having these unpredictable out of nowhere situations that would come up and make it so that, you know, I, I, I can't think of a job that allows you to lay in bed for a month at a time, not knowing when that month is going to come. So by the end of 2019, 
I had to stop working. So I have been unemployed since the end of 2019 and have been just dealing with most months being almost completely um, debilitated by some of this craziness and trying to just, in the moments that I can, be myself and do what I do, which is getting out and walking and moving and running and biking and crossfitting as much as I can because I know it's good for me, both mentally and physically. But the, the underlying problems have made, you know, actual, real, honest life impossible. Wow. You have gone through a complete identity obliteration. How is that for you emotionally? You know, it's definitely hard, but I think it's another way that um, athletics can really help us or hurt us, but it depends on perspective. I was helped a bit along my journey by having things switch on me before. This is going to sound like a really stupid example, but I think of being 12 years old and I was a gymnast and I was at that time a very good gymnast. Early on in gymnastics, if you are a hard worker and a technician and a perfectionist, you can do very, very well with very little talent if you work really hard. And so I was at the time the best on my team and I had won a couple of Ohio State championships on different events and was very used to being team leader and doing really well. And so there's that identity that goes with that of, of being, of the being, you know, the, the best on your team and people, the one that everyone can count on. And I move up a level as you do the next year going to maybe 13. And that level change required a lot more difficulty and a lot more talent. And I didn't have it. And I worked really hard and it didn't matter how hard I worked. I could not get the skills I needed. I went from the best on my team to the worst on my team in a year. And I wasn't thinking of this at the time. Of course, I was 13 years old. But when I look at it and I look back on it, I definitely went through that stretch of having to find a new why and having to find a new identity in, you know, why are you doing this? Is it just because you were winning? Because you're not winning anymore. So if you're not winning anymore, then why? And discovered, like had to kind of dig in and realized in my own way that part of what I loved was the camaraderie of my teammates. Part of what I loved and what I had to offer my team was being the positive cheerleader, helping where I could. I became a coach for years. And, and so creating a new identity within that sport was not entirely new. And in having the injury that I did in 2014 after my first Ironman, I went instantly from that high volume, biking with everyone, running with everyone, doing all the things to really the only thing I could figure out how to do in any way was CrossFit. And so I kind of dug into that. We're going to do something different identity. And those experience, though nowhere close to being the same as losing your job <laughs> and losing your ability athletically to run the pace that you could before. And we all know that that means you can't run with the people you were running with before, um, or you think that. It turns out that when you have good friends, they run your pace because they want to be with you. And there's a, a degree by which we all have to trust when we're told that, that, that it's true. But I definitely leaned on and learned from those athletic experiences that had led me to that point to help me realize that you can't just hang your hat on one thing and one definition of yourself. Also helped for me was the documentary Losing Sight of Shore. It is an amazing documentary about a group of women who row across the Pacific Ocean. They row from California to Australia, all entirely by themselves, all entirely a group of women. 
And I mean, this happens months. This takes months and months and months of constant rowing. And what was really interesting to me in that documentary was one of the women, and really only one of them, had been a lifelong rower. That had been her identity. She had done it through college. She had been constantly. And all of them, eventually, when you are rowing hours a day, every day for months, everybody comes to hate rowing, right? Like everybody comes to the point where it's like, I do not want to do another four hour shift. I'm going to lose my mind. And for her to go through that with the thing that had defined her, at least watching it, that's what I saw was someone that it just broke her. It just created this identity crisis of if I don't love rowing, who am I? And that stuck with me. And I saw it at a time before all this had happened, but it really made me realize that if we pin our identity on these things that may not be with us forever for whatever reason, that it can crush us and it doesn't need to. That isn't all we are ever, ever. And so I've really held to that throughout all of this in reminding myself that my identity is not how fast I can bike or how fast I can run. I'm lucky in that I might be in a very different situation mentally if I had a catastrophic spinal cord injury and I couldn't do any of that. But I genuinely believe that my experience with working in rehab and looking around and seeing Paralympic athletes and understanding that I, as I said, you know, down to being just the absolute worst situation where you are completely paralyzed from the neck down. I can't envision a scenario where I wouldn't have sought out and found a way to move, a way to be active, a way to do things in a wheelchair or in a whatever. And so because I have a wheelchair in my garage that is waiting for me because I have a progressive disease and we never were sure. No one actually really truly thought I was going to get out of it. There's that awareness that things can turn around. And so my very, very long answer to that is I leaned on and learned from the experiences that I had. And many of them were definitely athletically to remind myself that my identity isn't singular and it's not just about um, the speeds and the ability and the and the thing that I could do at the same level before. And that has helped me tremendously. That's really powerful. You were able to take these experiences from being an adolescent, a preteen, and apply it to something so different. But that's the beauty of sport and movement, right? Is it gives us these really powerful lessons that we get to apply throughout our life. 100%. And it's circular. I've thought this before when I've done a really hard CrossFit open workout where you're just pushing yourself really hard for a score and everything hurts. Like every muscle hurts, every everything hurts. And I can remember being in those moments since and doing that workout and having that thought in my head of if I could get through the pain that I was in in the hospital and still get up and get on feet that were killing me. I have dealt with pain. I have dealt with adversity. I have had broken bones and raced on them, which didn't know it at the time, but things happen and that's the way life goes. And it's like, if I can finish an Ironman on a broken foot, I can get through this time in the hospital. So it all, it's all circular. Athletic helps our life. Our life helps athletics. It, it, all of those experiences are invaluable to having us have that support to understand that we are far more capable than we think we are. That's beautiful. What does the future look like for you right now? 
Yeah. So the future right now, you know, CIDP is a rare disease and rare diseases are tough. I say this as I say this as a scientist and as a research scientist. So I understand how this works. Research scientists are by and large paid by grant dollars. And so you have to be able to convince someone that the problem that you are working on is important. And of course, grant dollars are limited. They are not infinite. And so you have to convince the granting agency that the problem is important to a lot of people or else why. And the more rare the disease the more narrow the scope of where you're able and how many funds are, are able to be there because it's not affecting that many people. It's a tough nut to be in when you are the person with that disease because <laughs> you don't care how many other people there are. But what it means is that there are only so many people and some do, but there are only so many people who are working on cures and working on treatments and working on solutions. At the moment, there really are only two treatments that are the FDA approved standard for CIDP. I receive plasmapheresis on a regular basis once I got out of the hospital. So I'm hooked up to that dialysis machine essentially every week. And what that has also meant is that things like vacations, things like trips, things like moving around the country or the world, like I am tethered back to this hospital. And unlike dialysis, this is not something that you can just get at any dialysis center or any, any hospital anywhere for a variety of reasons in this country in particular related to insurance. I'm really limited to only being able to do this at the hospital where my neurologist has scheduled it. So that has created an interesting uh, change to our world for sure. And that's where my life is right now. I'm also on daily steroids. Steroids are helpful. They slow down the production of antibodies and the release of them into your system, but they also have pretty intense and known side effects. So at this point, they've given me prediabetes, my blood sugar is crazy, crazy town in the evenings and creates a lot of problems. You have the stuff like the moon face and there's also osteoporosis to look forward to. There is glaucoma to look forward to. And the longer you're on steroids, the, the worse it is. And those are really the only things that are there. So at 40, now 44 years old, um, looking at an entire life of being tethered to my plasmapheresis machine and steroids that will eventually get worse in terms of what they're taking from me was really scary, as well as the fact that it's pretty common in CIDP for plasmapheresis to eventually stop working. They don't know why, but it stops working, it stops being effective. And that's the only thing I have. We've convinced insurance to let me try a couple of new kind of either low-dose chemotherapy drugs or what are called monoclonal antibody treatments. People may be hearing about some of that as it relates to, to COVID. For me, nothing else has worked. And so what that has eventually brought me to is an awareness that there is a treatment that is provisionally, I will say, um, accepted for FDA approved for MS called HSCT, which is hemopoietic stem cell transplant. What it is really is that you get intensive chemotherapy over a short period of time that is intended to kill your immune system, destroy your immune system. It's kind of like we're saying we can't figure out exactly what cells and what portion of your immune system is attacking you. It's like, okay, we're going to throw out, we're going to kill the entire immune system and start again. And so that's what they do. Um, and so you get intensive chemotherapy. And prior to that, there is a harvest of your own stem cells that happen. And then those are reinfused. And the reinfused 
just to try to help you build an immune system back a little faster so that the chemo doesn't kill you, basically. Just to be able to bring that process back that would happen naturally of of returning white blood cells and returning platelets and returning all the things that you need to function into your system. There are two completed clinical trials in the United States for CIDP. There's another one happening now. For anyone that's interested, they should look into University of Denver and University of Washington and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. They have a CIDP trial going now that they are enrolling people in. I talked to them. They rejected me. It's one of the hard things about working as hard as I did and being as lucky as I did to have recovered as far as I did is that I look too good (laughs) to be taken in on some of these early trials. So I'm a tough nut for research. And I talked to everyone I could think to talk to in the United States to try to convince them to start a CIDP trial to do this with me. And in the end, it's not going to happen. So there is a clinic in Mexico, Clinica Ruiz in uh, Monterey and Pueblo, Mexico has been doing very, very similar to uh, protocol to what's being done in the United States. In the last couple of years, they have started treating people with CIDP and they have done so with pretty solid success. Solid being on the order of 85% of people are, are cured, meaning that they no longer need any of the ongoing treatments. So that means obviously 15% are not, so it's not a guarantee, but their safety standards are good. Their protocol is good. And I've been convinced that this is my chance and my opportunity. It's expensive. And this is expensive for me at this point and being unemployed and having put all of my savings and all of my everything into my medical costs at this point, I am straight up out of money, but My partner and I looked at this and kind of looked at the world right now with COVID. I wouldn't be able to find a job right now if I was employable in terms of being able to be reliable anyway. We are in lockdown, which for me as someone who is immunocompromised, the world has been particularly small since since March. Going to the grocery store at at first was was daunting and, and considered to be too much of a risk. So not leaving the house is something that I've already done for months and being very careful. That's the world I will come back to after receiving this treatment. So we decided that it was time to take the risk to figure out how to pay for it and to not overly worry about that cost and consider it to be an investment in my future as someone who is otherwise young and strong and would like to continue to be able to be so. So I am giving this a try. I am going and doing this at the end of October. I'll be in Monterey, Mexico for a month, receiving this full set of chemotherapy and treatment. And, you know, I'm preparing to buy beanies because I will lose all my hair and, you know, go through all the things, getting my wheelchair out again, because we know that I will probably be very weak upon return, but um, am very hopeful. And I go into this feeling the same I don't know where it came from, but when I was first in the hospital and I was paralyzed, the phrase, this is what we're doing now, kept going through my head. This is what we're doing now. And I think it kept me forward focused. It kept me from doing the, how can this possibly be happening to me? I just biked 120 miles a week ago. You know, all the things that you can go through with the why, 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 why. And that's where I am with this treatment. This is what we're doing. This is the world now. The other thing that was very helpful to me when doctors were first talking to me about Guillain-Barre syndrome. I remember a doctor saying to me, most people recover fully. 
And I remember thinking, is your fully recovered the same as my fully recovered? But I also thought, okay, that's going to be me. If some people recover fully or most people recover fully, that's what I'm going to focus on. And that's where I'm going to be. And sure, it may not happen. I may be in in the set that doesn't, and they certainly exist, and they've done nothing wrong um, in the fact that they're having trouble recovering. And that will also be true after uh, chemo. But it doesn't harm anything to believe that I'm going to make this happen, that we are going to make this happen, and it's going to be for the positive, and it keeps me in a mindset that I think is only helpful to recovery. And so that's where I am. This is what we're doing right now. And this is going to be me. That 85% is going to be me. I believe it. You've convinced me. (laughs) I think your outlook is so inspiring. And this is not to compare experiences, but I think that kind of outlook is exactly what we all need this year. Like this is the year that just keeps kicking us when we're down. Oh, it still does, right? It still does. You know, it's so interesting when things first started to be canceled and everybody's races were being canceled. There's nothing, I don't want to say there's nothing harder for an athlete. I know as a fact there is, but it's a really hard thing, right? To have your goal race potentially or completely be taken away from you or be pushed around and you don't know. And I saw so many people saying, this training is wasted. This training I did is wasted. And, or I'm, I'm wasting my time because I don't know if this is going to happen. And all I could think of, and I tried to express when I could, is the fact that when I ended up in the hospital, instead of doing my Ironman, over the course of that three and a half months, I told you that one of the major concerns was, can you breathe, right? If you can't breathe, <laughs> go to the Vancouver hospital because the paralysis can take over. And there's a lot of people that end up on a ventilator over the cool because everything just is paralyzed and shut down. And so I was being monitored very, very carefully in terms of what my breathing capacity was. And when I looked back later at the numbers, because I was having to blow into a tube as hard as you can, and it tells you how many liters volume you can push out of your lungs. And when I looked at the data later, because I'm a data nerd and that's what I do, the lung capacity that I had in July would be halved when all this hit and it would continue to go down by half over the course of the time that I was in the hospital. But I never had to be on a ventilator and I never went below normal. And all of that for sure is due to the fact that I had created a monstrous lung capacity by Ironman training and endurance training and, you know, 16 marathons and all of the things. And I lost all of the strength, but even when I was considerably weaker than I have ever been in my life, I could still then transfer into my wheelchair and learn how to push up out of bed and sit up and all of these things that wouldn't have been there if I had not been in the very, very best shape I would have been all year when I got sick. And so when we all look at COVID and when we first thought about it, it was respiratory, although certainly it it can affect a lot more than that. Never think that your fitness is wasted because you never know what's coming. And in a world where unfortunately there's something very real that could be, 
on top of all of the other things that could certainly happen, but this one's the most present to us right now, to think that your training is wasted or that money that you spent is wasted. Like the money I spent on Ironman Canada, was I out thousands? Yes, of course I was. But I would not have trained that hard if that goal hadn't been there and that race hadn't been there. And so I would not have that body that I am convinced is the reason that I came through this as strongly as I did. And so I think that's also something, and it's harder to grasp too if you've never been through it, but your fitness is never wasted. Being as strong as you can, as you are able, and mentally sometimes we're not in a place to, to do the hardest training we possibly can, and that's fine. But keeping ourselves moving, keeping ourselves strong, keeping ourselves fit serves a greater purpose than just the race. The race is an outstanding carrot, and I love them, and I will continue to do them. But if that race is taken away, your fitness is never wasted, ever. Yes, I love that. I love that so much. You never, you may not know what you're actually training for. Exactly right. You do not know what you're, you may not know what you're actually training for, 100%. In your wildest fantasy of post-treatment in Mexico, what does life look like? Oh, wow. That is, oh, wow. What a question. I mean, post, post, I'm going to call this post, post, because the first year I know is going to be the rehab and recovery and whatever. Not having to do treatment. We're going to just assume that I am on the other side, no treatment necessary. And I'm very aware that that's what cured means. The chemo will not heal my nervous system. It cannot heal whatever is calling these vestibular migraines. It cannot heal itself, the neuropathy in my feet and the loss of muscle in my legs and the fact that, you know, I walk with a crutch and that I, I do, which I, um, although I run and bike and all of those things, I do that with braces on. And because of the neuropathy in my feet, anything on my feet is painful. Socks are actually painful. So I use braces, but if I wore them all day long, I'd lose my mind. So I use a brace, I use whatever, and I use a crutch to get around to make sure I do it safely. I may not get any of that back. So, but if my nervous system is no longer under attack, it's possible that those things will heal some on their own. Not my feet. Uh, those are gone. Those nerves are, are damaged beyond repair. But things like that are newer, vestibular migraines, problems with my blood pressure crashing and, and me passing out if I stand up and all these other crazy things that have been happening, um, it is possible that they will heal in time. And so my craziest dream <laughs> is that those things will heal at least to a degree that I am more stable as a person, that I'm not losing a month of my life every other month to these insane headaches. Maybe it's just a bit, maybe it's just a day. So I will find a space on the other side where I'm able to work. I don't know what that job is going to be. I've been away from being a lab scientist for a year. I don't know if that is where I want or should try to return to, even if I could, but teaching, public speaking, I've been working on a book. Those types of things could be a, a much bigger piece. Finding something regular as a job that works with that. I don't know if being self-employed is going to be my path, but I look forward to having options that aren't entirely dictated by my ability to stay awake <laughs> or do so without the world spinning and my stomach dropping is kind of a wild dream scenario. Athletically, I have 
much unfinished business when it comes to Ironman. So I really would like to build myself back up to do at least one more. I have come to find that I love trail racing. My partner and some friends in the first year that I was in recovery found Trans Rockies, which is a a five-day trail race in Colorado. And I went with them and, and volunteered. And it was the most amazing experience to watch them go through it and to tackle this insane race and elevation and trails and all these things that as a downtown Chicago runner, trails are not something that that are easily on, on offer. And so we did Trans Selkirks, which is up in British Columbia, um, an amazing race run by incredible people. And I did the three-day last year, came dead freaking last but got through it and was on mountains and on mountaintops and through view. And it's everything I love about athletics, the opportunity it gives to do incredible, amazing things with friends. My life will include things like prior to COVID and prior to this disease. um, We went with friends that do a European bike trip every other year. And so we had linked in on that and gone and, and towards Spain on bikes, um, the, the year before I got sick. And that was an unbelievable trip as well as being able to contribute to be a productive member of society as a thinking person, as well as a moving person would be the dream. It all sounds so dreamy to me. Sounds dreamy, right? Let's do it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Activist. We publish new conversations about topics related to fitness, health, and community every week. Please subscribe and review wherever you listen. And to join us for live workshops and movement classes, please visit flexandflow.org slash join.